Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're, we're uh, going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, how are you all feeling today? I, I, I'm going to actually put it to you that uh, you might not be feeling great, uh, but that's okay because it's good to be moody. That's going to be the title of my message. It's good to be moody. Why is it good to be moody? Well, you're going to have to listen, listen to find out. We've done a little bit of uh, kind of looking at heroes of the faith. We've looked at uh, Peter and John as we walked through the book of Acts. We've looked at uh, Philip, and, uh, which we did last week, and before him, Stephen. And we've talked about them being ordinary people. Ordinary people who, who sort of rise to hero status because they, they let the Holy Spirit work within them and they, they choose to just let God be in them. They've chosen to just simply say yes and let God uh, go, do with him as he would. And so I'm going to talk to you about another person today and that person isn't to be found in the Bible. We're going to kind of do a vicarious testimony today of a fellow who is one of my heroes. And I have several, uh, but he's one of them. And it's not because of this first point. He dropped out of school when he was 13. That's not why he's one of my heroes. But uh, I, if you're young, you probably latched onto that already. You have a talk with your parents later. It's not why he's a hero. He dropped out of school when he was 13, but he was a lifelong learner who went on to inspire students at Cambridge University in England and to found an internationally known school of higher education. He once preferred only to teach children because he was uncomfortable speaking with adults. But he emerged as one of the most persuasive orators of his day. He was born on a remote, very poor, poor dirt farm in Massachusetts in 1837. But he became famous for conquering major cities with God's message of forgiveness and hope. He was once in love with money, and yet he ended up living an austere and very simple life. And when a million dollars actually did come his way, he channeled every penny of it into spreading God's good message of hope. One biographer described him as having the impulsive, quick temper, and rough humanity of the Apostle Peter, the single-mindedness, strategic skill, and hardiness of the Apostle Paul, and the love, spiritual appetite, and steady growth and devotion to God that were in the Apostle John. He was an unassuming, self-effacing, no-frills, ordinary guy. And yet when he died, even one of his critics was forced to concede this ultimate compliment. All in all, it's probably very true as his admirers claim, that he reduced the population of hell by a million souls. His name is Dwight Lyman Moody. That's why it's good to be Moody today. The namesake of Moody Bible Institute, Moody Press, Moody Church, and the Moody, Moody Radio Network. And he's one of my heroes, and one of the great heroes of the Christian faith. And I want to introduce him to you. D.L. Moody spent his life helping people helping people on two continents to say simply yes to God. That's what we've been talking about, isn't it, through this whole entire series on the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Just very simply being able to say yes to God. If I was to summarize it in his life, it would be into a bunch of P letters, which we're going to work our way through. 
perspective, priorities, power, purpose, and investing in a payoff of eternal significance. So let's begin with the first overarching theme in the life of D.L. Moody, his perspective. He made the decision to focus on significance instead of success. But it didn't start out that way, oh no. Dwight Moody was born in Northfield, Massachusetts as the seventh of nine children. His father passed away when Dwight was only four years old, and his father passed away one month before his mother delivered twins. As you might guess, back in the 1800s, his mother struggled to support the family. But even with her best efforts, some of her children had to be sent off to work for their room and board. Dwight was one of them. He was sent off where he received the same food, cornmeal, porridge, and milk three times a day. How do you like that so far, kids? Cornmeal, porridge, and milk three times a day. He complained to his mother when he went back to her and said, this is all I'm getting. And when she found out that even though there was no variety, he got all he could eat, she sent him right on back. When Moody turned 17, he left and moved to Boston to work, and after many job rejections, finally agreed to work in his uncle's shoe store. One of the uncle's requirements was that Moody attend the uncle's church, which was the Congregational Church of Mount Vernon, where he was placed in a Sunday school class of a fellow by the name of Edward Kimball, who picks up the story in 1855 as follows, and I quote, I determined to speak to him about Christ, about his soul, and started down to Holton's shoe store. So Kimball's going down to talk to Moody at Holton's shoe store where he's working. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go in just then during business hours. I, went, I thought that possibly my call might embarrass the boy and that when I went away, the other clerks would ask who I was and taunt him with my efforts in trying to make him a good boy. In the meantime, I had passed the store and discovering this, I determined to make a dash for it. Time out for a second here. What would you do? This is you. You're already quaking in your boots. You're wondering, should I even say anything? Should I interrupt? Should I go in? I think almost all of us have been in a situation like this. We feel a prompting of the Holy Spirit to do something, perhaps speak to somebody, but then we start to accumulate all the reasons why it's not a good idea and why the timing might even be wrong. And now, in Kimball's case, he's already gone past the shoe store and he decides to make a break for it. He had all this. He's missed it, he's questioning whether he should be doing this, and so he says, I was determined to, and he goes back. This is what Kimball did, and I hope you don't lose sight of the significance of one simple person's seemingly insignificant decision such as this. I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. In other words, I gotta do this, I just gotta make a dash for it and get it over with rather than I'm gonna make a dash for home and hope there's another day that this all works out. I want you to keep this in mind through the rest of our time together here this morning, the significance of one ordinary person's seemingly insignificant decision such as this. He makes a dash for the shoe store. He continues, I found Moody in the back part of the building wrapping up shoes. I went up to him at once, putting my hand on his shoulder. I made what I afterwards felt was a very weak plea for Christ. Hear this. I've made what I thought was a very weak plea for Christ. I don't know just what words I used, nor could Mr. Moody tell me afterwards either. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. 
It seemed the young man was just ready for the light that then broke upon him, and there, in the back of the shoe store in Boston, he gave himself and his life to Christ. Now, how many times have we thought it has to be a perfect scenario, I have to say exactly the right words, and it has to, like, this all has to play out perfectly, and here we have the exact opposite, and yet Moody gives his life to the Lord. Kimball said this about Moody, even after the fact. I can truly say, and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God as bestowed upon him, that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think that the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership. They turned him down for a whole year, by the way. More unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. Even though I just led him to the Lord, I think it's, you know, this is going to be a miracle if he ever amounts to anything. A year later, at the age of 19, in 1856, young Moody moved to Chicago, mostly because he had yet another uncle who lived there who also owned a shoe store. He had one major goal in his life, and it was to accumulate $100,000. He made it very clear his goal in life was to accumulate $100,000. And in that day, the average person made about a dollar a day, so 100000 was quite a mountain of money. So Moody worked hard, making $30 a week at the shoe store, and earning extra income through buying and selling property and shrewdly lending money to others. He was ambitious, he was enterprising, he was entrepreneurial, and well on his way to achieving the goal that consumed him. Now, as a Christian, he did take some time for a church, and he even started a Sunday school program, and there's going to be a, a picture showing <clears throat> that's his Sunday school class. He went to the poorest part of Boston and grabbed all the kids. He enticed them. He rode a pony and gathered them by handing out candy as he was walking, driving along on his uh, pony. And uh, he got quite a crew there, by the look of it. Uh, Gangs of New York comes to mind when I think about it. Anyway, um, a Sunday school program to reach out to kids from the slums. The class met first in an old dance hall and then later in an abandoned freight car. Moody would ride a pony around up his kids, maple sugar, anything he could to encourage them. Like in his financial dealings, though, Moody was mostly interested in numbers. Having the biggest Sunday school program in the city was his goal, and that's what he accomplished. President Lincoln even came to visit this huge Sunday school. He didn't really think he could change the kids in any meaningful way, though, but he felt if he could show some love and tell them some Bible stories, that this might be beneficial to them somewhere down the road. So, kind of nominal in his faith and in his outreach. But then, his entire life was reoriented because of one single, seemingly insignificant incident. One of his teachers, one of his Sunday school teachers in this big Sunday school he'd amassed, was absent one day and asked Moody to teach his class of young girls aged 12 to 16. He had a terrible time. This was the most unruly, undisciplined class he had ever seen in his life. The kids laughed in his face. He wanted to open the door and throw them all out and tell them never to come back. Fortunately, we don't have Sunday school teachers like that here, right? The following week, the teacher whom he had substituted for came into a shoe store looking very upset, pale, and telling Moody he was bleeding from the lungs with tuberculosis and that his doctor told him he was on the brink of death, so maybe it would be best to return to his native New York City to die among family. Moody said, oh, well, I can understand why you're so upset. And listen to what the teacher said. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not why I'm upset. I know I'm going to die, and I know where I'm going. 
No, what has me upset is the girls in my Sunday school class. After all these months, not one of them has received Jesus as their forgiver and leader. I can't bear the thought of dying with that happening. Without that happening. Moody had never heard anyone talk this way before. The teacher's love for the girls was so strong and his concern for the eternity so deep that Moody finally said, well, you know, kind of if you feel that strongly about it, how about if I drive you around in my carriage and we'll visit each girl individually and tell them about Jesus? So they set out to do exactly that. They went to the first house, the teacher barely able to climb the stairs because he was out of breath due to his illness, and they talked to the young girl about Jesus who longs to have her simply say yes to his love, yes to his forgiveness, yes to his grace, yes to his free gift of eternal life in heaven with him. And there was no laughing this time. Tears pooled in her eyes, and she prayed right then and there to say yes to God. Then they drove to the house of the next girl, and the same thing happened. And the next, and the next. The following day, they went out again, and the same thing the day after that. Finally, after 10 days, the dying teacher came into Moody's shoe shop and said, seemingly kind of just with a joy in his face, his face shining, Mr. Moody, he said, the last one of my class has yielded herself to Christ. Together they celebrated as they had never celebrated before. And since he was leaving the next day to go home to die, Moody decided to call all the girls together, and he said later that it was this meeting that kindled a fire in my soul that has never gone out. There the youth, newly adopted into the family of God, gathered around their dying teacher who had led them to Jesus. They read the 14th of chapter of John out loud to him, where Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And they sang some hymns, and they knelt and Moody prayed. As they were rising, something remarkable happened. One of the young girls, just freshly redeemed by Christ, spontaneously began to pray for her teacher. And then another girl did, and then another girl did. Heartfelt, sincere, loving prayers that Moody had never thought he would ever hear come from the mouth of these girls who had once been so unruly and rambunctious. Prayers of thankfulness for this teacher's influence on their lives. Prayers of thanksgiving that his eternity in heaven was assured. Moody had never seen or heard anything like this. These children were turning around and ministering to their teacher in, their, in his time of need. As he went out afterward, Moody said to, me, to himself, Oh God, let me die rather than lose the blessing I have received tonight. The next day, Moody went to the train station to say goodbye to the teacher. Just before the train departed, without any prearrangement whatsoever, even amongst themselves, one of the girls showed up on the platform, then another, then another, and another, and finally the whole class stood there in honor, in honor of their teacher. They choked back tears and tried to sing, but they broke down. And the last sight any of them had of their teacher was he stood on the rear of the train, <clears throat> excuse me, as it pulled away from the station, and had his finger pointed up towards heaven as if to say, I'll see you all again in heaven someday. All of this changed Moody's life. In light of all that he had seen, suddenly his dream of stockpiling 100,000 bucks lost all its allure because he said, I got a taste of another world today. That goal suddenly seemed unworthy of his life. We just sang about wanting to present something of worth to our Lord. 
He just suddenly realized the goal suddenly seemed unworthy of his life, his one and only life, just to accumulate a possession. Jesus' words flooded his mind. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the moment Moody's focus shifted from success to significance, from goal to purpose, from merely stockpiling money to focusing on the one thing that's eternal, which is people. He decided to leave a legacy that would outlive him forever and pursue a mission in life that really mattered. In fact, it's been 124 years since Moody died. And think about it. If all he had achieved in his lifetime was to reach his original goal of stockpiling $100,000, the truth is I wouldn't be standing here talking about him to you today. Lots of people made lots of money in the economic boom of his day, but we don't honor their names. Yet millions, and I'm not even slightly exaggerating here, millions of lives through history have been changed for all eternity because D.L. Moody realized that merely making money was not a lofty enough goal to aspire his one and only life to. So what about you? Do you have goals? Do you have a life purpose? Do you have kind of a, a mission that's worthy of spending your one and only life to achieve. The point is that whatever your purpose is, you tend to arrange your priorities, your energy, your time, your efforts around achieving it. And if your whole life is oriented around financial success, chances are you'll end up someday like a group of people that were 95 years of age and older who were asked what they would do differently if given the opportunity to relive their lives. What their very first top answer was, I would risk more. Do you know what number two was? I would do more things that would outlive me. I would do more things that would outlive me. See, nobody wants to end their life with that kind of regret. As for Moody, he made his choice on that day. He went from being consumed by the shoe business and accumulating money to being impassioned about the people business. And that brings us to the second lesson from his life, priorities. It was Moody's great love for people that gave great urgency to his message. To Moody, the issue was very simple. He loved people. He knew why they mattered to God. He knew they mattered to God. Because of their wrongdoing, he knew from the Bible that people are separated from a pure and holy God. <clears throat> they can't relate to him, and they can't fully enjoy his presence. They can't draw strength from him in times of need. They can't access his promises. And unless they simply say yes to Jesus, whose cross is the only thing that can bridge the gulf of separation, then their eternal fate is sealed and their separation from God will continue for all eternity. Because he believed that message to the very core of his being, it became the most important piece of news in the world. And so he spread it with great enthusiasm and great urgency. Once, when walking down a certain street in Chicago, Mr. Moody stepped up to a man, a perfect stranger to him, first time he'd met him, and said, Sir, are you a Christian? You mind your own business, was the reply. Mr. Moody replied, huh, Well, this is my business. Get what the man said. man said, Well, then you must be Moody. Imagine being known by that. The city of Chicago. You know, millions of people and still... Well, if you're going to walk up to a stranger and ask him if he's a believer, you must be Moody. Out in Chicago, they used to call him in those early days Crazy Moody because day and night he was speaking to everybody he got a chance to speak to about being saved. 
One time he was going to Milwaukee, just up the coast, and sharing the seat that he had chosen in the train was a traveling man. A traveling man. Mr. Moody sat down beside him and immediately began to talk to him. Where are you going, he said. Simple conversation starter. Mr. Moody asked. When told the name of the town, he said, Home. Well, we will soon be there. We'll have to get down to business at once. Are you saved? The man said he was not, and Mr. Moody took out his Bible, and there on the train showed him the way of salvation. Then he said, Now, it's your turn. You've got to make a decision here. The man did. He's converted right there on the train. As Moody was returning... After a night meeting on a crowded Madison, Wisconsin streetcar as, as a strap hanger, that's what they call people who were hanging on basically to the streetcar by a leather strap hanging from the ceiling, a, a rider asked who the big man was, pointing to Moody, told that he was Moody, the, event, the revivalist. The scoffer asked him then a question in front of everybody on the streetcar. Hey, sky pilot, how far is it from Chicago to heaven? Quick as lightning, Moody answered, one step, will you take it? And yes, sometimes he got carried away, which is how he got the nickname Crazy Moody in his early years. Like the time Moody saw a little girl standing on the street with a pail in her hand, and he went up to her to invite her to come to his Sunday school class. She promised to go, never showed up. A few weeks later, as God would have it, Moody sees her on the street again. When he starts towards her, she runs away in the other direction, and Moody takes off in pursuit. Now, this is a quote from one of Moody's friends. Listen to this, and I quote, down she went one street, Mr. Moody after her. Up she went another street, Mr. Moody after her. Through an alley, Mr. Moody still following. Out on another street, Mr. Moody after her. Then she dashed into a saloon, and Mr. Moody dashed after her. She ran out the back door and up a flight of stairs, Mr. Moody still following. She dashed into a room, Mr. Moody following. She threw herself under the bed, and Mr. Moody reached under the bed, pulled her out by the foot, and led her to Christ. When her mother came home and demanded to know what was going on, Moody led her to Christ too. And then one by one, he led her other children to Jesus as well. Several of those kids later became prominent members of the Moody Church, which he ended up starting. And this particular child, who he pulled out from beneath the bed, became an active participant in the church, married one of the church leaders, and gave birth to a son who also became a committed and active Christian and influenced others. Said Moody's friend about this, when Mr. Moody pulled that little child out from under the bed by the foot, he was pulling a whole family into the kingdom of God, and eternity alone will reveal how many succeeding generations he was pulling into the kingdom of God as well. Now, caveat here, you'd get arrested if you did that today, okay? But this incident tells you something about the heart of D.L. Moody. He was so full of love and concern for that child, he was determined, I mean, capitalize that in your mind, determined to bring her into the family of God, even if he had to chase her all over Chicago, which he did. In fact, Moody vowed that he would not let any 24 hours go by without talking to at least one person about Jesus. Think about that kind of a commitment. He vowed he would not let any 24-hour period go by without talking to at least one person about Jesus. R.A. Torrey, the first leader of the Moody Bible Institute, he took over from, from Dwight, tells the story of how one night Moody got home from the shoe store very late, and suddenly it occurs to him he hadn't spoken to anyone that day about God, and he couldn't stand the thought of losing that 24 hours. So he went outside and ran to a stranger underneath a lamppost. Moody asked him rather point blank, because time's a ticking, are you a Christian? 
The man was indignant. He said, that's none of your business whether I'm a Christian or not. If you weren't some sort of preacher, I'd knock you down into the gutter for being so impertinent. Moody said a few earnest words and went off. The next day, the man was still so incensed that he called on one of Moody's prominent supporters and said this, and I quote, that man Moody has got more zeal than knowledge. He came up to me last night, a perfect stranger, and insulted me. He asked if I were a Christian, and I told him it was none of his business, and that if he weren't some kind of preacher, I'd knock him into the gutter. He's doing more harm than good, that Moody. He's got zeal without knowledge. You know what? That's not so far from what we hear sometimes when we hear of a new believer going out and speaking to someone about Christ, right? Oh, hang on a second. They're just, they're just all on fire. They don't really have all the underpinnings. They don't have all the foundation. They don't know all the Bible. How can they possibly lead someone else to Christ? He's got more zeal than knowledge. Moody's friend receiving this sent for him and told him about the conversation. It looks like you're doing more harm than good, he says. Well, Moody is crushed. He's deeply troubled by this possibility that this might be true. But then a few weeks later, late one night, there's a tremendous pounding on Moody's door. He thought his house must be on fire or something. It was like someone was trying to break his door down. He opened it, and there was the stranger that he met under the lamppost. And this is what he said. Mr. Moody, I have not been able to get a good night's sleep since that night you spoke to me under the lamppost. I've realized that I'm not really a Christian at all, and I've come to you at this unearthly hour to find out what I must do to become one. Does that turn of phrase sound familiar? <clears throat> it's not unlike the rich young ruler, and you can look that up in the Bible. But let's jump ahead in our study of Acts here for a moment to chapter 16. Paul and Silas have been imprisoned because of their preaching. Rather than feeling discouraged, the two of them pray in their, cell, in their cell and sing hymns. An earthquake shakes the place, shakes the prison, the doors open, and the chains of all the prisoners were loosened and let free. The jailer, thinking they had escaped, which was that point of his own life, in those days if you were a guard, if you were a jailer, and whoever you were guarding or jailing got away, you paid for that mistake with your life. The jailer, thinking they had escaped and his life was over, run, ran to the dungeon and discovered them still there, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's how Moody responded to this man and helped him say yes to Jesus. It's my fervent prayer today that every single one of us understands our eternal destiny hinges on whether we say yes. Hinges on whether we receive Jesus as our forgiver of our sins and the leader, the Lord of our lives. And if we really believe it, how can we not tell our kids and our parents and our brothers and our sisters and neighbors and colleagues and friends? How can we not at least invite them to a place, maybe like Southland, where you can, you can hear, you can investigate what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus and get the answers you need. What must I do to be saved? It's worth taking a social risk, isn't it, to enter into spiritual conversations with people? What's the worst that could happen? If they're not interested, that's their choice. But let them decide. Don't make that decision for them. Let's not shy away by deciding in advance. They're not really interested in spiritual stuff, so I'm better off not bringing it up. Because just maybe, just maybe, like the stranger from under the lamppost, they'll surprise us. 
Thirdly, D.L. Moody said that, or had this as one of his character uh, priorities. His amazing influence and impact came not from his own efforts, but because he aligned himself fully with God and his Holy Spirit. So he, just, he made a conscious decision, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit rule my life rather than those gifts and skills that I have. And he wanted anything that was of him to be removed so that the Holy Spirit would have like 100% use of him. While Moody was in England preaching there, an elderly pastor protested. Why do we need this Mr. Moody, he said. He's uneducated. He's inexperienced. He goes on and on. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? A young, wiser pastor rose up in the meeting and responded, no, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. Wouldn't that be a great thing to say about each one of us? The Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Pastor Lauren. The Holy Spirit has a monopoly on me. Speaking to a large audience, and here's an artist's rendition of that in England, D.L. Moody held up a glass and asked, how can I get the air out of this glass? One man shouted, suck it out with a pump. Moody replied, that would create a vacuum and the glass would shatter. After numerous other suggestions, Moody smiled, picked up a pitcher of water, pitcher of water and filled the glass with water. There, he said, all the air is now removed. He then went on to explain that victory in the Christian life is not accomplished by sucking out all the sin here and there, but rather by being filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. He said, I believe firmly, firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. We must be emptied before we can be filled, he said. It's not about how much of the Holy Spirit we have. It's about how much the Holy Spirit has of us. There's a famous story about Moody meeting a British pastor by the name of Henry Varley. Henry Varley was a great man of prayer. After he and Moody spent all night praying, Varley casually let a remark slip that penetrated Moody's soul. He said, Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man who is fully devoted to him. Moody was startled by that. He thought to himself, he just said a man. Varley didn't say a great man. Varley didn't say an educated man, a rich man, or even an eloquent or clever man. He just simply said a man. Well, I'm a man. It lies with the man himself whether he will or will not have that full and entire devotion. And by the Holy Spirit in me, Moody said to himself, I'm going to be that man. With that came a monumental change in the way Moody lived. And he chose to live the rest of his life in complete surrender to God's sovereignty instead of his own self-sufficiency. He stopped his practice of making decisions about his life and then routinely asking God to bless them. Instead, he laid out his life unreservedly before God and said, you lead, I'll follow. You give the order, I'll obey. You point out the hill, I'll take it. That decision initiated an adventure that eventually rocked two continents. With God leading the way, Moody spearheaded one of the great spiritual revivals in England's history and then returned to the United States where his impact for Jesus was multiplied beyond any dream. Before radio or television or airplanes, it said Moody traveled a million miles and told 100 million people about the life-changing and eternity-altering gospel 
of Jesus Christ. He left a light on for an entire generation in North America. He actually did a, a, an outreach in Vancouver and Great Britain, and the effect continues to ripple down through history, all because Moody aligned himself fully with God. Remember the story we started with? Edward Kimball obeys the whisper of God, leads D.L. Moody to the Lord. D.L. Moody goes to London and begins, begins to preach in the United Kingdom. There's a man there by the name of F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer is a London pastor, an intellectual, who, for what reasons we don't understand, chose that there was too much focus on Jesus as far as the, the scriptures go, and he intentionally set about kind of downplaying Jesus' impact and import in the whole thing. Meyer's congregation told him, however, that they wanted this newly famous evangelist who had just come to the country, Moody, they wanted Moody to come and speak to them while he was in town. So Meyer reluctantly agrees to bring in Moody to speak. Meyer, who had a lot of intellectual pride and was ashamed of the name of Jesus, invites Moody to come and do a revival in his church. Go figure. When Moody showed up, Meyer immediately took a dislike to him. He didn't like him because Moody was not well-dressed and because he only had a fifth-grade education. Meyer had doctorates. Meyer was brilliant. So he looked down on Moody, but Moody got up to preach in Meyer's church and was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The power of God was upon him, and, he, and he, as he spoke, he focused on you guessed it, Jesus, Jesus, and more Jesus. As such, hundreds upon hundreds of people came to faith in Jesus Christ that day from the pews of Meyer's beloved church. Because of this, you think maybe a change? No, Meyer is embarrassed and he's consumed with jealousy that Moody would come in and do this in his church and he hadn't done it. After the revival, Moody senses the tension, he quietly leaves leaving Meyer and his congregation and his, to his jealousy and anger. Two weeks later, Meyer was talking to one of his Sunday school teachers, and the teacher says, you know, FB, I got to tell you, I used to focus on all kinds of stuff in the Sunday school class. I never focused on Jesus. But, New, but Moody taught me to focus on Jesus. So I've been focusing on Jesus over the last two weeks of Sunday school, and I want to talk to you about this boy who accepted Jesus during my class. As he told the story, Meyer began to weep. The Holy Spirit broke through. He was convicted and supernaturally changed. For the rest of his life, he preached Jesus to all who would listen. And one of those who listened and believed was Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman comes to the U.S. on a speaking tour. He's teaching and preaching and meets this baseball player, a new believer by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday really loved the game of baseball, but Chapman says he thinks Sunday is really good at baseball, but he's probably even better as a preacher and a teacher, and that's exactly what happens. Sunday becomes a preacher. Some years later, Billy Sunday finds himself in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, where he ends up speaking in, in meetings downtown there for a week. Downtown are many marketplace leaders. They all come to these tent meetings, and many of them come to faith as a result. And they decide as marketplace leaders that they're going to pool their resources so they can have more of these tent meetings, which would then influence the city for good. They go to Billy Sunday and ask if he can come back in three weeks and speak some more. But Billy says he's booked for the next six or seven weeks, so he can't come back. But he suggests they invite a guy by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham, he says, is bold. He's gifted. He loves the word of God. You'll like him. 
And so these marketplace leaders invite Mordecai Ham to come and conduct some evangelistic tent meetings. He shows up, Ham shows up, and on night two of his meetings in town, there's a tall, lanky, 16-year-old farmer's kid named William. He and a buddy are just hanging out in town when they decide on a lark to go see what all the craziness is about going on in the tent. They have intention to kind of make fun of it. So they're clowning around when they enter this tent, just as skeptical and cynical as a couple of high school boys can be. Once inside, they realize, wow, it's packed. There's no room for us. It's just packed with people, and they can't find any seats. So Will says to his buddy, let's get out of here. Let's blow this joint. But as they turn to leave, an usher standing there sees them, and he says, hey, guys. He walks up to them, puts his big arms around their shoulders, and says, you know, hey, guys, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Let me grab a couple of seats for you. Yeah. So the usher finds them some seats in the back. As Mordecai Ham begins to speak, the scales start falling off this young man's eyes. His heart became quite tender to the grace and love of God. And at the end of that message, William started walking to the front. William, his friends called him Billy Frank. Billy found Jesus that night, and Billy Franklin Graham went on to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. Sidebar here. I hope this inspires every single one of you who serves the Lord in any capacity, anywhere, whether it's here at Southland or anywhere else. That usher could never have known how God was going to use him that night, nor the millions, the millions that would be reached through his simple, faithful service. If you are faithfully serving God somewhere, God bless you, and he will use that, and you have no idea the impact you will have. In one of my earlier churches, there was a couple that I met that was just thrilled to be in, in our church, and uh, as part of the conversation, and thinking somewhat highly of myself, I said, so, what is it? What is it about the church that just, you know, made you want to stay? Thinking, message? The washrooms are clean. <laughs> the washrooms are clean. Think, think about it for a moment. A volunteer who was cleaning the washrooms made such an impact on this couple that they stayed in this church. Do you see? It's the simple things. It's the simple acts of service. It's serving where God has you and doing it as unto the Lord, and it makes a difference. So serve Christ, knowing that it might be a mystery what God is going to do through you. It's incredible. God is great. You have no idea what he can do. The power of God attends the grace of his gospel. So be faithful to your call and commission. What if Edward Kimball had said, I went too far today. I passed the shoe store already. I think I'll wait for another day. What if Mordecai Ham had said, no, I don't want to go to North Carolina. What if Billy Graham had walked out that day? What if the usher hadn't stopped him? What if you say no instead of yes? I'll tell you what happens. Our community, our church loses. Our church loses. The kingdom of God loses. And you lose out on an experience that will take you to the supernatural activity of God in your life. As a pastor, I don't want you to miss that. I so don't want you to miss that. I think you hear some of these stories and you think they're just so amazing. This must be such an incredible guy. The truth is, 
He's just an ordinary guy, an ordinary person that God is using. Truth is, you can have stories like Moody's too. Because there's a God with all of this redemption kind of potential trying to take your own wind out of your sails and replace it with his wind, his Holy Spirit, and invite you into into the grandest adventure in your life. And all you have to do is just say yes. By the end of his life, there was no doubt to Moody, who deserved the credit. It's not me, he said. One day, an elderly gentleman was introduced to Moody and exclaimed, how glad I am to meet the man God has used to bring so many people to Christ. Moody replied, you're right to say the man God has used. With that, he bent down and scooped up some dirt from the ground, and he let it run out between his fingers until it was all gone. And then he said, there's nothing more than this to D.L. Moody except as God uses him. Another time he said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield, Massachusetts is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. Dale Moody, you see, had truly come to embody Galatians 2.20, which says, no longer I, but Christ lives in me, right? And the point is, it's exactly the same for you and I. It's exactly the same. The scripture applies the ordinariness please don't be insulted, applies. It doesn't require a graduate degree or a talent test or an entrance fee. It just requires us to stop saying yes, but to God and then simply say, yes, I'll follow. I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Take the but out of it. But I don't want to give that up. But I draw the line at that kind of a sacrifice. I'll follow, but not in that direction. See, it's very simple when you boil it all down. It's no buts about it. It just requires us to say yes to whatever direction God's leading us. It's the way I've chosen to live my life, and it's taken me on all kinds of adventures that I never would have found otherwise, including standing here right now speaking to you. But... This is the road that lies before all of us to heroic faith, every one of us. It's the road down which adventure lies. It's the road that doesn't dead end at deep regret. This is what Moody says. Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was a somebody. Moses spent his next 40 years learning he was a nobody. Moses spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody, with an ordinary person. You don't have to be the most educated or the most successful. You just have to be available. Maybe the most available. In fact, I think God gets a kick out of using people who, in the eyes of the world, 
are the least among us to show the rest of us what full devotion can achieve. We need look no further than the disciples. We can care about people, just as Moody did. We can take risks by bringing up spiritual excuse me, topics. We can listen. We can befriend. We can spend time with people. We can be persistent in a loving and gentle and winsome way. We can pray, and we do. We can offer an invitation to church. We can ask God to use us. We can have a childlike faith that he will. And instead of ending our lives being racked by regrets, we can celebrate that we chose significance over success. We valued people over possessions. We relied on the Holy Spirit rather than our own skill. We surrendered to God's will and purpose for our lives and found rewards instead of regrets by the grace of the one whom we love and serve. Would you pray with me? Before I do, can I just tell you that there is a God in heaven who has enormous, unfathomable, un uncontainable love for you. There is a God in heaven who frees people from themselves. People that we've been looking at. People who we're going to be looking at as we continue on in Acts. People like Saul. There is a God in heaven who promises to set you free if you will just say yes. There is a God in heaven who wants to heal you and restore you. There is a God who has wired you for something greater than you can even ever dare to imagine if you'll just say yes. And for some of you, I believe, the time is now to say yes. You've come up with a million excuses, and yet in the face of it, it's pretty hard to refute a very simple response, isn't it? I'll say yes. I'll just say yes. See, every one of us has a choice to say yes or no. God's ordained it as such. It's the way that he knows that we love because we choose to love. Every one of us has a choice to say yes or no. So can I just be blunt and say stop saying no? Stop saying no. Just say yes. My prayer is that we individually and collectively, as his church, simply decide to say yes, capital letters. Heavenly Father, we're here because we love you. And we know and we feel Oh, yes, sometimes we ignore. But we intrinsically know that we have a value beyond the ash, beyond the dirt. Not that it's something that we can contribute to it, but because you have created us. Because you know each one of us intimately. Because you gave your son's life for us. And we've yet to lay eyes. We've yet to lay eyes on a single person who Jesus didn't die for. I pray that you would find us here at this church. Here, each one of us who's listening in our hearts, beginning to say yes. Yes. 
and we would enjoy years of yeses yet ahead, risking for your glory. And Father, for those of us who've been steadily saying no, it just kind of rolls off our tongue so easily now, who've been shying away from the faces and places that you keep dropping into our hearts, God, I pray for a sense of courage to overwhelm them, to be moody, to just be moody. It's okay to be moody. That they would receive a boldness and a courage directly from you. Maybe the better question, Father, is what could happen if we all say yes? What could happen to Steinbeck? What could happen to our spheres of influence? What could happen to our family and our friends if we just say Yes. God, I pray that you would let us taste of this yes this week. Something supernatural, Father. And for those of my brothers and sisters here who, who need to come to you, to need to let their past go, I pray that they would understand that you require nothing of them other than admission of the same and saying yes. I pray, Father, that we'd each of us leave here with yes on our lips, with a renewed, inspired outlook on life, knowing that you brought each one of us into this world for the adventure that lies before us, for your purposes. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to move, to move in this place, to move in the hearts of every person listening, to move in a mighty and powerful way this week, that the kingdom of heaven would be represented within the kingdom of earth. May it come down. May it be part of our lives, we pray. That is our heart and our prayer. And all God's people agreed and said, amen.